0: Sex Communication, a podcast of explicit audio and frank conversation. How do we talk about sex? How do we communicate during sex? Well, if you're here now, then you're going to find out. My name is Brianne McGuire, and each week I share an uncensored peek into the things we don't discuss. Sex. 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 I can't say the word sex. Sexy sex. Hello and welcome to episode 107. In today's episode, I speak with Andrew Parry, a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. He's also the founder of Sexual Assault Awareness, an organization that's dedicated to treating and raising awareness of sexualized violence. I met Andrew earlier this year at the Positive Sexuality Conference in California, where he gave a presentation titled, Guided Rape Exposure Treatment, a Proposed Model. Andrew focuses on the controversial and taboo topics that most people in his field won't address, including specialized populations in the sex trade and human trafficking. He's also writing the first ever book on the arousal experience in sexual assault to help rape victims and therapists understand their response, hence the subject of his conference presentation. As you might expect, given the nature of his work, Andrew and I have a shared interest in discussing the things that most people won't. So who better to interview for this show? We talk in depth about his professional work, but of course we also get into the intimate nitty-gritty of his personal sexuality, as is customary on this show. So, let's get into it. Here we go. So, why don't you um, just kind of tell me a little bit about yourself before we get started.
1: Uh, I am Andrew Perry. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which is a thing in California. Um, I know different States have different versions of licenses for social workers, but it means that I can practice independently and see clients and do psychotherapy treatments. Um, and my main mission and goal is to end the shame and stigma around sexualized violence, primarily with girls and women. Um, I do sexual assault recovery work. Uh, trauma treatment. I do a lot of speaking nationally, training nationally. I tackle taboo topics in the sexual assault field that really no one else is talking about. Whether they know about the material, whether there's information out there, um, I I seem to be the one who's willing to jump in there and and talk about things that are difficult to talk about.
0: To jump in, you do work with, uh, like you said, you know, sexual assault and and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Is that always been a part of your focus or is that something that kind of came later in your career?
1: Um, It became a focus really early on. Um, So the very first client I saw um, was a young lesbian woman about my own age. And she disclosed to me that at 11, she had been raped by a male um, and that that was causing some conflict for her and her sexual identity and also the trauma of it herself. And she had never disclosed to anybody before. Um, so we worked through that trauma over a number of months and resolved it for the most part. I imagine there was more work to do, but she was comfortable coming out to her family as a lesbian, which was her initial goal. And at the end of it, she told me that I had a gift for working with this kind of thing. Um, and that it's something I should strongly consider pursuing in my career. And it wasn't something... I knew I wanted to work with teenagers and children. Uh, I knew I wanted to work with women. So, um, so yeah, so I started, I, I did a lot of agency work, but through all of that, I always maintained a caseload of um, women that I worked with on sexual assault recovery issues. Um, and so while trauma and sexual assault recovery was sort of my private practice passion, so maybe the last 10 years when things kind of jumped and I can talk about why and how that happened
0: well yeah i'm what i would like to do uh first before we get into that and you know i, I did warn you about all this that you know we are going to talk about your own personal experience because I'm, I'm curious too if there is a connection between how you grew up with sex and your own experience with sex that may have contributed to your openness to being so involved in this topic. Um, so just to backtrack into your own personal life a bit, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you first found out about sex and what it was like growing up in your household, how the, the subject was treated?
1: My mom was a teacher, and my dad was just a very well-read, open-minded human being. Hmm. Uh, so I'll start with that. Um, my dad did, like, tons of hitchhiking Uh, He hung out in jazz clubs in the 1950s when whites really weren't appreciated or allowed there because he just loved the music. So being open, being willing to kind of break boundaries and um, uh, um, introduce himself to spaces where he was, he, because he was interested in what was going on and then he was welcomed and accepted because of that, that kind of concept uh, was something I grew up with. Um, And my mom was an educator and a teacher, but as far as, you know, I don't actually recall having, you know, a talk, the talk, I talk with parents about, you know, these are talks that happened many times over the years from from early childhood and onward. What I do remember is having a very clear memory of being interested in girls from the time I was in kindergarten in terms of my own sexual identity. Mm -hmm. I remember chasing girls around on the playground and flirting and, you know, at at the level that a six, seven-year-old can and that kind of thing, Um, having um, sort of first innocent girlfriends in fifth grade and that kind of stuff. Um, But as far as knowledge of sexual matters. Um, I think I kind of had a typical boys experience of discovering my dad's uh cache of Playboys mm. in the garage when I was probably seven or eight, I don't know. Um and I I was also hyperactive. I was I had ADHD as a kid. So I was impulsive and all over the place. And my parents had tons of stories about that um but i immediately took um most of the centerfolds out and plastered them all around the walls of my bedroom <laughs> it's funny to do that um probably not without i mean oh pretty naked ladies but not really having a strong sexual connection just this looks pretty and and i thought it would be funny to do that
0: um did your parents I- share that that sentiment though <laughs> You
1: know, it's funny because I, I remember certainly getting, you know, in trouble or punished for various things, usually putting myself at risk, like, you know, running across the street without looking. But I don't remember them really flipping out over that. What I remember is my mom and dad talking about it, and my mom saying, I don't know if that's a good idea. And my dad saying, like, he's expressing himself. <laughs> and then some, I seem to remember, like, a private talk and then taking them down. But it never felt like, I was in trouble or there was, you know, something horrible about it that it was okay for me to, you know, see these pictures. It was okay for me to, you know, have these feelings and thoughts and questions. So, you know, if anything, I grew up knowing it was okay to talk about, but, um, but I also remember shame and embarrassment. Um, I remember one time masturbating as a kid in the bathroom and I didn't lock the door and my dad accidentally walked in and quickly left and then tried to have a conversation with me afterwards. And I might have been, I don't know, 13, 14, somewhere in there. um And just being horrified that <laughs> so I was having this conversation with me. And he was like, you know, it's completely normal. And, you you know, I don't want you to feel embarrassed. And I was just like, uh huh, uh huh. Okay, yep, nope, I'm good. <laughs> yep, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Dad. Okay, high five. Okay. <laughs> Just, I wanted that conversation over with as quickly as possible. So clearly there was some sense of, you know, shame about that, that, you know, it was okay to do, but I didn't want anyone to know about it kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So when you, how old were you when you started having sex?
1: Oh gosh. Uh, I was 18. I was in high school and I was seduced by uh, a girl who was two years younger than me. So Technically, and she also was dating one of my bullies, um, <laughs> which made it all the sweeter. Um, but she literally seduced me. I was invited to a party at which I was the only attendee, and I had no idea. And <laughs> I, never, I was so nerdy in high school. And uh, I mean, I had friends, but I was in the theater group, and that was kind of where my. Uh, you know, if I, if I had a positive reputation, that's where it was made. I would be like actor of the year and I'd be involved in performances. And I had that kind of element in my life. But otherwise, I was a bookworm. I was an egghead. I was a nerd. I was teased and picked on and bullied pretty much all through high school up until maybe my senior year. But for whatever reason, she was in my theater class and she took a liking to me and invited me to this cool party, she told me. Um, and I showed up at the party. And not only was I the only one there, but it turned out she was babysitting for someone. Hmm. She was at someone's house. <laughs> um, this is a very and, sexy party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she would like we'd be making out, and then she'd have to go like put the kid to bed. Uh and then but yeah, it quickly became apparent to me, oh, this is this is this is this. This she's wanting to do that. Okay. Um And I will say one of the proudest moments of my life, and I've done lots of lectures, I've gotten, you know, nice feedback and awards and things over the years. Um, But after we were done the first time, she asked me when my first time was, and I kind of stammered and said, well, this was it. Um, And she was like, no, (laughs) really? You were pretty good. (laughs) So there was like, you know, at 18, first time, that was a huge boost of confidence.
0: Right. So was sex something, once you started having it, um, do you feel like it was something that you were immediately comfortable with, or you took a lot of time Just to try to find yourself? How did it evolve from there?
1: Um, it was probably a dry spell for about a year. And then the next, ex- I mean, I didn't—I had a girlfriend in high school, um, and we did some things a lot of heavy petting making out kinds of things um a little bit of oral but not penetrative um so that was really my i think my only high school experience that i recall and then i would jump ahead to i was working at a mall at a like a candy store um and this older woman she was 21 um Came in and for whatever reason, she took a liking to me and she uh, wanted to hang out with me after I got off work, took me back to her apartment and we ended up having sex all night. Um, And that was my second experience. And then after that, maybe I was I think I started dating someone, but pretty kind of, you know, really until probably the last 10, 15 years of my life, it was pretty vanilla, I would say I had I was married for a number of years uh from my so I was with the same person for nearly 20 years uh from my 20s to my 40s um so I was with that one person and there was no experimentation or you know kinky play or anything like that that really wasn't until after my divorce um and I started exploring more of that side of myself
0: so when you were married though were you did you have a longing to experiment while you were in that relationship and having the vanilla sex, or it was something that you hadn't even considered?
1: No, I think I did. Uh, a lot of my fantasies revolved around that. I don't think it's something I ever would have brought up with her or talked about. Communication was difficult um, in that relationship, so um, you know, even even expressions of, of kind of other kinds of desires would turn into controlling, screaming matches. Um, and, um, I mean, there's, I can go and there's a whole other piece to that, but yeah, um, I would say years and years of probably thoughts sort or of flickers of fantasies that I thought about, oh, that would be fun, but not really knowing how much of that existed in the world. Yeah. Um,
0: so now that you're out of that relationship and like you said, the last 15 years or so have been more exploratory. Yeah. Um, do you, do you feel like the importance of sex or at least the importance of sexual compatibility that that has shifted, that's become more valuable to you? Or do you feel like you still place the same level of importance on that when it comes to other, you know, getting, yeah. oh, no, I, it's
1: a, um, I would definitely say I place a strong importance. I believe it, I mean, it's a fundamental human need, I think, um, you know, sexual access is, is something that we haven't even as a society really begun to talk about. Um, I do a lot of looking at where were we as a species 30,000 years ago, which was kind of the very beginnings of civilization where we are now and how much more sexually free and open we were at that point versus under the constraints of society. So I think for any of us, even those of, even those people who are, you know, wildly exploratory, that we're not really at the place we were many thousands of years ago yeah as far as me personally um there's things that i want to try and experiment and i have a partner now who's much more open to that um i'm in an open consensual non-monogamy relationship um she is an avowed lesbian even though we've been together for a couple of years, um, so we I tease her about that about you know you're a lesbian who's with a with a straight man. Um, she finds that very funny. Um, she had um, a female partner of many years. Uh, they're no longer together, um, but that is still an interest of hers, um, and which I'm very open to. And so we we do a lot of uh, she really introduced me to
0: a lot of the arenas that I was interested in. Um, play parties
1: and you know what what consensual non monogamy means in practice and reality and how that works um so i've had the opportunity with her and and previous partners um to be a lot more um sexually open but i'll say even at the same time one of my partners over the last 15 years uh was a virgin mm. and she and i were together for 3 years and i loved her and i adored her and we um Made out and we did some things, but again, we never had penetrative sex. And I was happy in that relationship. Yeah, it came to an end for reasons that had nothing to do with sexuality. So I, I'm pretty, I love having sex, but I don't know that you know, clearly, I can also go for periods of time without it, right? So I don't know what that means.
0: <laughs> well, you're the psychotherapist, you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it means I'm adaptable and fluid. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. So in the relationship that you're, you're in now with this, you know, self-avowed lesbian, or do you have a sexual relationship or it's purely like romantic and
1: no, no, no. It's very sexual. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, which is, that's part of the amusing part to me now. it's um, And much more, I mean, as much as I'm interested, she's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and, um, It's so, but much of that piece of it is much more driven by her than by me. I'll say that. Um, so yeah, she, she very much enjoys it. Um, she's actually the second, um, lesbian that I've been with who said that they, uh, really enjoyed having sex with me. So again, whatever that means, um, but I had had a previous partner who had had, she was more bisexual, but she preferred the company of women. Right. Uh,
0: So, I mean, in any way, because again, you know, you're, you're working primarily now you have a sexual awareness organization that you're the founder of. And I know this is like a very important topic to you, but how, mm -hmm. if at all, has your work informed your personal life and vice versa?
1: Um, how's my work and for my personal life, you know, I've always been very close to women and maybe that's the, the, the piece that I need to weave in here that most of my closest friends going back to high school, middle school were women. Um, I always had enjoyed a relationship where women felt comfortable talking to me, opening up to me, talking about things I had, you know, friends in high school who would disclose, you know, issues either with their boyfriends or their own sexual issues or their own just, you know, hurts and complaints of life. Um, so even in high school, I thought um, <clears throat> psychotherapy was a potential path for me at that point. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to be David Letterman. Um And so I pursued that path for several years after high school, acting and performing and doing stand-up comedy around Los Angeles and things like that, and uh, improv comedy. Um, But um, I I think kind of the eye-opening experience was I was, I think I was 15, and there was a documentary on uh, teen prostitution. That's... What it was called back then now we call it commercial sexual exploitation of children um, or csec and i saw this documentary about some organization in los angeles that was rescuing girls off the street and it kind of blew my mind at 15. uh because i was in the you know lower middle class white protected two-parent world and what struck me was oh my god these are girls my friends age hmm. these are like people who are close to me and who i care about <clears throat> And something about that just struck me um, about how horrific that was. And I think that shaped my consciousness in terms of, you know, kind of those later experiences with that first client that I had and and the direction that I wanted to go. And so when I became a psychotherapist, I think that was a direction that kind of naturally drew me.
0: You know, as you have worked more in this field and, you know, obviously your experiences are changing in your personal life do you have you expanded um maybe the outreach to patients that are you know also exploring what non monogamy looks like and you know just kind of maybe atypical sexual experiences has that been something that's also happened in this path that you've taken?
1: You know it's interesting you know we we say sometimes we learn more from our clients uh than they learn from us. I was aware of and talking about those concepts for years before i really was directly involved in them myself so and and again for you know whatever reason whether it's my personality or my style uh clients seem to open up to me at a deeper level than i than they've told me they've been able to with other therapists um and because so much of the work that i do Revolves around sexualized violence and sex and early sexual experiences and painful sexual experiences. the topics other topics around sex naturally come up about you know wanting to be with a partner but being afraid um, or wanting to expand sexually and not knowing how and so I've had a lot of those conversations with clients um, but I would say probably in the last few years, that piece of it has expanded. More because I put myself out as a kink aware therapist, as a therapist who's you know open to those conversations and to talk about polyamory, and consensual non non monogamy. Um, but it was naturally coming up in the office before that, just in the context of the work that I was doing.
0: And do you do you think that your own interest in non monogamy? I mean, as somebody that's in a, a an open relationship, is it something that you're doing because this feels more natural than monogamy to you? Or is this something that, you know, just happens to be the circumstances that you're in right now and is maybe not necessarily the type of relationship that you require?
1: I love that question so much because I think it goes to the heart of human sexuality that we're afraid to talk about. And, and, you know, so much of what I talk about is how do we break taboos? How do we look at who are we as sexual beings fully, um, and exploring that? And I do think that society, not, and I'm not talking U S society, I'm talking around the world, um, whether it's from a religious authoritarianism or, Um, you know, constrictions that have arisen because of people living in close proximity to each other. Uh, Patriarchy definitely is a huge issue. Um, I think we are constrained from being the sexual beings that we are. We have so much information showing that um, we are biologically wired to have multiple sexual partners. We're biologically wired um, to be in multiple relationships as we are born babies thrive when they have multiple caregivers that mm-hmm. whole concept i think uh, repopularized by hillary clinton of it takes a village to raise a child isn't just this sort of you know uh, phrase it stems from a very real concept that thousands of years ago we didn't care about paternity we didn't care which woman was pregnant from who all the children belonged to all the village and everyone had a hand in raising them Um, The whole concept of paternity and the importance of that is really what created this male ownership of women, kind of, you know, that ridiculous notion. And I think the more we can move away from that, the more we're going to return to our more sexually free roots and identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm as much a victim of that as anyone else. You know, why in my 40s am I finally feeling okay starting to explore that well because i live in the same society everyone else does and i wasn't moving in circles that made that okay Hmm. now now i am so um so it's you know easier to explore that
0: and so do you think if the relationship circumstances you're in now were to end or shift and you know you're looking for new partners you know you're it's that's what you're looking for you you would want to be with a new partner that shares That willingness and that openness or you know, if you met somebody that's like strictly monogamous, would you even consider being with them?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and it's not one i've had to consider recently, but I I think it depends on My fulfillment with them. Mm -hmm. Um, do I believe that, you know All people can fulfill one person can fill fulfill all desires. No, that's why we have friendships and activities and hobbies and things but I also think it's possible. I do think it's possible for two people to be so well-matched that they don't want to go outside the relationship. So I wouldn't rule that out. But standing where I am right now, I would go looking for someone else, probably in the community, who's open to a consensually non-monogamous relationship.
0: Yeah. I want to explore the, the kink side a little bit. So you definitely mentioned you know, that you've presented yourself as being kink aware and, and open to that topic in your practice and you know that you've been exploring it more recently in your life so i guess i just in in having this conversation so far i i do have i suspect something but i just <laughs> curious like do you identify as a dominant or as submissive or that's not uh, the area of kink that you uh, you work into
1: um dominant
0: okay that that actually what that's contradictory to what I was expecting. I was What's expecting you because you know your early experiences were very like female driven. That that would you know kind of inform you know some sort of arousal in you.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I get that. Um, I mean, you're not looking at me, but um, throughout my life, um, especially when I was younger. I was tagged as gay. I was made fun of for presenting that way. I'm extremely straight. Um, And so it was early on, it was hurtful, like in middle school, high school. And then as I got older, it just became amusing to me because I had the musical theater background and I was in top of the arts. And so I ran into a lot of women who I found out were very attracted to me, but they thought I was gay. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, my current partner, when we first met, she you know thought that as well and it wasn't until I came on to her that she went oh okay. <laughs> oh well i like you so um so i've encountered a lot of that um so you know whether that's worked I, I used to be upset that i wasn't taller and you know more muscular but i think overall it's worked in my favor um but in terms of my identity very much heterosexual very much um uh, more dominant in in that sense uh, in, in in the bedroom. I mean, in terms of my egalitarian views of you know women in power and that kind of thing uh, around the world, very open in that sense. But I think those pieces play into each other,
0: right? Do you feel like the inclination to dominate though is is compensating for these experiences?
1: Hmm. Um, thinking, thinking. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think I'm going to have to say I have to think about that some more. Um, probably earlier in my career, I had I had a bit of a white knight complex. I was going to rescue women. And I was going to save them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've matured a lot since then. Um, so there may have been that sense of, you know, the dominance coming from this protective sense. Um, and so in terms of my you know sexual self, there may be that element of. uh mm-hmm you know, taking that more dominant role. Um, but in terms of my professional outlook, it's much more balanced, I think, than it was and, and giving people, um, tools to be able to heal themselves and help themselves with guidance, with knowledge, with information. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's a good answer to your
0: question. (laughs) And I'll do. So what are you really into? Like what gets you off sexually? What is your, your area of focus and delight right oh,
1: now gracious Brienne <laughs> things I like things <laughs> and doing things with my body and theirs also too um, yeah I'm, I'm actually a little embarrassed I'm not sure how, how much I want to get into that what kind of things am I into um, okay well uh, do I say this Here's, here's the thing, and this is why I'm hesitating. I'm always really concerned about my professional identity as a man, especially who works in the sexual assault recovery field, mm-hmm. and how anything I do sexually is going to be perceived in that context. So I think I tend to be very protective. Okay. Uh, and so in my personal life, I'm very open, I'm very communicative, um, but uh, I'll say this. Um, one of the things that I do is I sit on the board of the center for positive sexuality, um, which put on sex pause, Com, where you and I met. Right. Um, and I've been with the board for a couple of years now and I run their certification program, all very wonderful, nice things. Um, and I don't know if you attend this, but one of the events during the weekend was a dungeon experience, bringing, uh, the attendees to a dungeon to be able to see what a sex dungeon was like. Um, And so there was demonstrations of um, whipping and restraints and rope bondage and different kinds of things. And I got to participate in my first public paddling scene where I played a professor uh, with my partner playing the role of a student. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was with my colleagues, with these other people from the conference. And that was the very first time I've done that openly in front of other people.
0: Was it a positive experience for you?
1: It was, it was a little, you know, it was very much with the encouragement of my partner. If not for her, uh, I don't know that I would have done it. Um, but she was like, let's do this. We're at the conference and, you know, this is a way for you to blend, you know, to, she was looking at it as a way for me to kind of address this nervousness that I've had about my professional identity, personal identity. Uh, and she was very supportive and, uh, dressed up in this really hot school girl number. Um, and uh and played the the brat that was her uh, her role and we had another colleague in the room just sort of more participating observing which was fun um and um and she really took the she took the lead as a bottom in making it okay for me to do that but once i was in the role i was in the role yeah Uh, and had a lot of fun with it and being able to you know, see people walking by or look through the doorway because it's an open dungeon. So people can peek in on the different scenes going on. Um, and seeing a colleague of mine actually look over me and wink at me <laughs> as he was doing a whip demonstration in the room across the hall. Uh, that would be pro villain who you've already, who you've also talked to. Yeah. Um, and he's a buddy of mine. And, uh, so that, that meant a lot to me because I've talked with him about taking a more active role.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it.
1: Sure, sure. There it goes. It's out.
0: (laughs) And the world hasn't ended. You haven't died. Um, No, but I I, I, I do appreciate you being willing to share that. So, (laughs) while we're opening up a little bit, I mean, are there events in your life that, um, like, I mean, do you relate to your sexual assault victims? Is there, have you been through similar things yourself?
1: Yep. Um, During my teenage years for several years, um, uh, I'm not going to say by who or under what circumstances, but I was, um, molested by an older male.
0: Nice.
1: Um, and, um, it wasn't something I actually dealt with until I was late twenties, early thirties maybe. Um, and it came out by a happenstance. I had just started sharing with a therapist for the first time um so i very much understand the hesitancy and difficulty and shame for my clients when they first come to me and they're opening up for the first time and it may be 10 15 30 years since whatever happened to them um and i see some people who it just happened a few weeks ago and they filed a police report and they're seeking support and i talked to some women who uh had you know early childhood abuse experiences so i very much relate to to that piece um But um,
0: it wasn't until I was well into adulthood, into the beginnings of
1: my career, that I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and said, if you're going to be a therapist, you need to deal with this shit. Um, So you you need to go back to therapy. I've been in therapy before, but I just never disclosed that. Um, So I went and I told the therapist, this is something that happened to me in my teen years, and I need to deal with it. Um, And it was painful and difficult. And it took me several years to really work through that and what it meant to me and how it affected me, um how I had closed off in many ways emotionally from myself, um, and learning to kind of re reopen to that part of myself. Um, and you know, going back to your earlier question of, you know my kind of my sexual freedom and how do I play that out, who knows had that not happened? given my earlier experiences that were much more positive that I might have found that more open part of myself much earlier and i might not have ended up in that relationship um in that way uh in terms of my marriage
0: yeah
1: well I i think as i was growing and discovering my freedom that led to a lot of the marriage ending i tried to you know work with her around that, and talk with her around that couple's counseling and all of that, but she wasn't able to move in that way,
0: yeah, it just makes me think about that the first patient that you were talking about that you know she was a lesbian, but she wondered if if she hadn't gone through the experience she had gone through right. if, if she would be a lesbian. Do you feel like do you ever wonder if that if you because this was a a, a male abuser? Right. So do you think if if that situation had never happened that you wouldn't be so stringent in your heterosexuality? No. Hmm.
1: Um, No, I don't think that because my sexual identity, like I said, I mean, in kindergarten, I was clearly attracted to girls back then. And by 13, 14, when the abuse began, I was very clear that I was into girls. Yeah. Uh, Wasn't even a thought. Um, in terms of like bisexual or exploration, um, I, I will say, how old was I? Maybe 19 or 20. I had one experience just briefly exploring whether or not, um, bisexuality or homosexuality might be a thing for me. Um, because I had a job, I had a catering job and one of the guys that I worked with was very clearly out, very clearly gay, talked openly about it. Very cool guy. Um, and he took me back to his place afterwards and we had a really long conversation. Um, and he was great person. He wasn't, you know, I think he was interested in me, but he wasn't interested in making a move on me. He was helping me just kind of talk about it. And at the end of it, he said, yeah, Andrew, you're into girls just go back home and And he was just very cool about it uh we stayed friends for for a while after that yeah i mean I, i i didn't have that conflict i see it in a lot of my um not a lot but it does absolutely come up in my clients and i presented um at lgbtq conferences about that concept of whether sexual abuse affects our sexual identity um and it It can interrupt it, but it doesn't change it.
0: Right. Well, do you, as far as sexual identity is concerned, do you think of it, though, in such rigid terms? I mean, because it's kind of funny, too, that, you know, your partner is so adamant about identifying as a lesbian while she's having a sexual relationship with a man. And it kind of makes, I mean, especially even just in the current climate, like labels have less importance, right? I mean, at the same time that they are important, that people have the freedom to identify as pansexual and bisexual, et cetera, and every possible combination you could think of, like Um, it almost becomes irrelevant. And like, why, why is it something that needs to be determined, I guess, you know, instead of just being like where we are sexual creatures and, you know, whatever we choose to engage in, like why does that have to inform part of my identity? Why can't I you know engage in in an activity with somebody of the same sex or you know intersex or or anything and it not right. be something that I have to Internalize as like this defines me as a person. You know right. I mean, do yeah. you- uh,
1: I will just say I agree with you. I think that's a you know again It goes back to kind of societal mores and boundaries that I think largely stem from authoritarian religion about what's okay and what's not okay. And this idea that, you know, we have to identify ourselves, but that, that concept of labeling, I mean, it permeates throughout all of society, uh, in terms of our you know careers. One of the first questions that we get asked when we meet someone, well, what, what do you do? What are you right. kind of thing? Like our career identifies who we are and to say, I'm a free spirited human being who's living on this planet with you. What do you do? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not t- a typical answer that people uh, are comfortable giving. Uh, so I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, I, 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 I'll, uh, I'll amuse both my partner and you by saying she would love to see me, uh, in a scene, uh, with a man. Mm. Uh, it's been one of the things that she's talked about that it would really turn her on to see that we've talked about it, but, um, and I'm not entirely opposed to it for the kind of the adventure of it it's just not something that appeals to me
0: right which is totally fair <laughs> yeah i mean everyone has their own unique combination of things that do intrigue them and arouse them and things that are like either no effect or or, or negative effect Yes. Um, but I, I'd love to give you this opportunity too to talk more about your work and kind of like what really drives you and the things that you're focused on professionally now.
1: Um, sure. Uh, like I said, you know, focusing on kind of the taboo and sexual assault, what what most of my profession doesn't talk about, which I think, unfortunately, we talk so much about freeing. Uh, women especially, from shame and stigma related to sex and sexualized violence and being able to talk about these things, being able to report. Um, But my experience goes way back to the advent of the Internet um, uh, when Yahoo was first coming on. And it was, I don't know if people remember, but Yahoo used to be the dominant search engine. It was the Google of its time. Um, And they had this feature called um, Ask Yahoo. Uh, and anyone can go on and ask questions. And one of the, uh, so I, just for fun, I created an account and I would answer psychology questions and art and theater questions and different things. But one of the questions I saw coming up was, um, is it normal or okay for women to experience arousal or orgasm during rape? Hmm. And I knew enough at that point to talk to, The that, yes, it's perfectly normal. That does happen. It happens more often than people know and think. But apparently that was a really radical concept at that time um, because there was a lot of response to it. Um, And this is like an anonymous form. People don't necessarily, other than I said, I'm a psychotherapist and I do this work. Um, And that was kind of my first like ting that this isn't something people are really fully aware of. Um, And then, Jump ahead to the uh, early 2010s, maybe about 10 years ago. Um, I was on, if you're familiar with Reddit, yeah. Uh, I was on a forum there, and I forget what triggered me to do this, but I thought, oh, I do know. Um, I had had a client who was struggling with that issue. Um, she had experienced arousal, and I was talking to, but she had other complicating issues as well. And I was talking to a female colleague of mine, a, a woman who I greatly respect in the sexual assault field, and she kept focusing on the arousal of being this like deep seated um, psychological expression of her wanting the rape, but not being able to admit it. Hmm. And I was like, no, it's just it's a physiological response. I mean, I knew enough at that point to, to talk about that but it kind of blew my mind that here was this one who i greatly respected who i thought you know knew a lot who kind of really got it wrong um and so i decided to kind of throw the question out to the public waters and i went on reddit and i did an ama uh, and ask me anything yeah and just simply said this is an experience a lot of women have it's much more normal than people know but a lot of women are ashamed about it and i put it out there and it blew up it became I think it's still the top like psychology question of all time on Reddit. Uh, it got a number of awards and notices, and you know, I, I wasn't as familiar with Reddit at that point ten years ago. Uh, but it kind of it blew up, um, and thousands and thousands of questions. And I stayed on. Usually, AMAs go for two to three hours. I ended up staying on for three weeks yeah. to answer all of the different questions that people had, and to make sure the topic was getting uh, you know a fair uh, fair handling. And out of that, someone contacted me to come and speak in a national conference. Now I had done public speaking. I had worked for the department of mental health. I had run, uh, the emergency and crisis program for LA County for a number of years. I managed like high level situations at LAX with mentally disturbed people on airplanes and, uh celebrity, interventions, all kinds of things. So I was used to public speaking and public interaction, but this was the first conference talking about this topic. And for years before that, in my mind, I thought, well, this is something everyone in my field knows about. And it's common knowledge. But then I realized, and it was after talking to that female colleague, that it really wasn't. And I went back through all of the texts that I had kind of read in my own training all the trauma and sexual assault acts and found there was almost nothing written about arousal during rape and sexual assault, like a line here or there. Um, maybe I think um, two books had like a page about it. Yeah. Um, And so kind of blew my mind, and that's what led to the Reddit thing. And then I went to this national conference and presented – for the first time, I really didn't know kind of what I was doing. I put together the information, and I talked about the science and uh, physiology behind it and some of the psychological repercussions, and it was very well received. And then from that, I was invited to another and to another and to another, and now here I am 10 years later, uh, and I've been called uh, the rape guy (laughs) by, by people um i'm nationally known as uh well, what is it uh the national authority on the arousal mechanism and sexual assault i've been called that uh, and so i've been invited to all of these forensic conferences feminist conferences trauma psychology conferences to talk about this stuff um, and that kind of went down the road of where I am now and and what you saw me present. Did you see me present it? CBS? I
0: did. I did. I enjoyed it very much. It was a, yeah, I mean, I'll let you describe it. I don't want don't want sure. misrepresent you in any way.
1: yeah, I mean it's it's in, in a interview, it's kind of hard to summarize ten years worth of work. But very briefly, um I over the last number of years, I've conducted a number of qualitative interviews with women initially to explore the concept of consensual non-consent and rape fetish desire um just as a concept just as its own concept not necessarily connecting it to women with a history of sexual assault but what came out of those interviews was a very clear um correlation and again this is you know this is not thousands this is a few dozen women who I've talked to, so I I can't extrapolate to a great degree, but one of the clear themes that came out is the women who had a history of sexual assault, um, who participated in consensual non-consent with partners, or who engaged in other far more dangerous behaviors uh, that are called rape-baiting, where they will deliberately go out and do all of the things that professionals like myself uh, say not to do, even though there's no shame or blame in doing them. Uh, but dress a certain way, look a certain way, go to a bar, um, and attempt to get themselves raped, often very successfully. I have a whole case study about a client I worked with who who did that behavior dozens of times over a pretty short period of time before seeing me, um, where she would deliberately go out and pretend to be drunk and go to areas where she knew that she would get assaulted by men uh, and did that for the the sexual joy of it you could say uh that the the concepts of uh, having her consent taken away and the sexual pleasure she got from it were very intertwined um and i've talked i've done lectures on that case study it's very interesting but um so what i developed over the last couple of years was this Idea, this model that these women are going out and doing these things or they're engaging in it often without realizing why or understanding why, but they were also experiencing reductions in trauma. Their anxiety symptoms were lowering, their startled response was lowering, hypervigilance, all of the things, flashbacks, all the things we associate with sexual assault trauma um, or rape trauma were going down. Um, And I noticed this pattern and so I developed this idea of a guided rape exposure treatment, which is combining some very well-known classic concepts in in prolonged exposure treatment. I won't go into a whole thing about that, but in terms of trauma treatments, it's one of the most effective well-researched treatments. It's what I use with a lot of my clients uh, just in terms of walking through the experience, talking about it, and lowering the emotional association to the memories. That's the basic concept. Um, but doing that in a more dynamic way where they would, um, set up a scene in therapy and talk about their trauma points and the things that happened to them during their sexual assault and then go recreate them in a safe space with a partner. Um, and this is all theoretical at this point. I mean, these, the women I interviewed were sort of doing that, but without the guided therapy piece of it. Right. Um, And what I found as I talked to them and I educated them about uh, neurobiology and the neuroscience and why their bodies responded the way they did and why they were experiencing the um, the pleasure they were experiencing and why their trauma was reducing, there was even more of a trauma reduction. So having that piece, even though it was coming after the fact of their experiences, and I thought if we could create a model that walked women through what this could look like, give them control over those recreated experiences, enact those experiences, and then process those experiences in therapy, that there would be this very dynamic, uh, huge uh, decrease in the trauma symptomology that could cut out a lot of the time spent simply talking about it in treatment, which is what we do now. Yeah.
0: I mean, I thought the the presentation was fascinating, and it was it w- it wasn't a, a new idea to me. Um, I mean, I really appreciated that you created this you know a model for how to you know implement this as a treatment because I, I know especially anybody listening, and even yourself, who I'm sure you're in this community somewhat. But you know, it's kind of a well known thing with people that are involved with more BDSM. Uh, activities that you know a lot of them have been abused and participating in certain activities as a way to take ownership of things that have happened to you um right. and which you, you touched on in your your talk and it just it reminded me like i've been sexually assaulted myself now mm-hmm. four times the first one i was about nine i think mm-hmm. and i remember i did have i i did you know, have a physiological arousal experience with it. And I, you know, I had never told anybody that it had happened. Um, Mm -hmm. my mother had suspected like something had happened to me and would ask me and I just denied that there was any issue. And I remember Mm -hmm. watching, you know, I was a big Oprah fan, especially in in the early nineties. And she had an episode talking about, um, people who had been molested and just sexual uh, assault in general. And that, you know, one of the thing keep, uh, things keeping victims from talking about it is this shame because they did feel some pleasure. Right, right. So, and how, and yeah. yeah, it was such an important thing to hear, especially in that time. So I remember, I, I feel like that was one of the things I was able to take into adulthood and it really, you know, to really lessened the internal struggle I was having with the experience. Right.
1: And I'm glad you had those experiences. And, yeah, I'm aware of that. I mean, there's been Law & Order episodes about it. I know the Oprah episode uh, that you're talking about. So there's been these kind of touches on it, and it's sort of acknowledged. But as far as I can see in the field, it's never really been brought together. Yeah. And you make an excellent point about the kink and BDSM community because I think there was so much power and so much knowledge around issues of consent, around issues of bodily autonomy, around issues of owning um, uh, negative experiences and converting them into positive ones, that in the psych field, we are barely scraping the surface. Yeah. Uh, and as you heard me say in my talk, you know, one of my struggles in the last few years has been bridging these worlds, that I kind of have a foot in both of these worlds, and I really see the importance of bringing, I'll just say it's a broad term, kink psychology into the broader realm. Mm. But I've talked to many leaders in the, in the more kind of formal sexual assault community. And even when they have an awareness of it, the response is, yeah, good luck getting any real research done or or doing anything because you're you're gonna it looks prurient and you're gonna make it look like women are into being raped or women are getting off on it even with the arousal stuff which you know we now have a i won't say a good body of research a beginning body of research um there was a review back in 2004 that simply acknowledged for the first time, I think, in writing, that women experience arousal during sexual assault. I guided a a, a PhD student through her dissertation, and it's the first ever study directly with victims of sexual assault acknowledging their arousal. Um, And it's about to the percentages that I had predicted and that I see in my offices, which was, I think, in the realm of 30 to 40 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Of sexual assault victims
0: it's fascinating that it is like you said that it's not i i just it blows my mind it, because i mean also you know i was not only a victim of sexual abuse but physical abuse and it wasn't until a few years ago that i realized my interest in being um like physically dominated and and impact play and things of that nature choking or whatever were kind of my re you know re-experiencing in, in, in an ownership type of way where I'm controlling the situation, you know, of experiences that I had as an adult, because I, I had a domestic partner that attacked me and, Mm. you know, it was, I hadn't, I hadn't connected the things. And then it was like the more active I became in the community and more open I was about having these conversations, you know, I would hear a lot of people talking about the same thing. So it's not, yeah, I don't think it's just sexual abuse, but like physical abuse translates into sexual interests as well. And it just, I'm just so surprised that there isn't more focus on this.
1: There is a disconnect between the world of the psychology of sex, of sexual assault, sexualized violence, and the kink world where there is a depth of, no, how do I say it? A breadth of knowledge without a depth of knowledge, because I've communicated with a lot of people in the kink world and yes they understand that if i do this this happens and it makes me feel differently but without any real understanding of why that is right so i think there's this blending that needs to happen um and that's why i get um and and i'm gonna probably put my foot in my mouth a little bit in terms of the kink world, but it's why I get very nervous around so-called sex coaches and sex educators who say they do trauma work Mm -hmm. without having the education and the background uh, in that work, be, simply because they've been in the community. Yeah. Um, and I'll say, oh, I, you know, I know all these things. And I see them doing so much damage. And I see the women who come into my office who you know, worked with someone who said they knew about trauma, but ended up re-traumatizing them. So I do believe that there, this blending needs to happen. And it's why I appreciate organizations like the Center for Positive Sexuality, and um, NCSF, and, and TASHRA, and and Caris, these are all organizations that are psychotherapy and psychology related. Less CPS, more Tasha and Caris, but are dedicated to um, doing more and better sex research and bringing in the knowledge of the BDSM world and saying, we need to research this. We need to understand why the human body can experience pain as pleasure and pleasure as pain and how we can convert those and how we can take more control over ourselves in those experiences. I think there's a wealth of knowledge yet to be learned there, but I think mainstream society is simply afraid of it because mainstream society is afraid of sex.
0: Right. Yeah, it's just so funny because it, it's almost like a, a given. I feel in the BDSM community, and it's like
1: right, <laughs> right, no, absolutely. And that's you know, I, I talk about some of these concepts at uh, you know a high level psychology conference, and these are people you know who are writing the books and the research, and they'll sit there at one of my lectures, and go, oh, oh, this, <laughs> oh, so it's so fascinating. You know, I kind of heard about this before, but I never really knew about oh this. And then I talk to people in the kid community. And they're like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> what, Yeah, what is that? Is that an issue? Is that a thing? <laughs> like, yeah, it's very, very much so. Uh,
0: well, I, I'm so grateful that you, you could share about these specific, you know, segments of your, your practice and the focus on this topic, because, I mean, like you said, the fact that it, it hasn't kind of carried over into everyday society as much. As it probably should, you know, I think it's just a valuable topic of conversation, and I really appreciate your your openness and wisdom on this um is there are there any other things that you wanna to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, just that the
1: the result of that disconnect ends up creating so much harm and shame for the victims of sexualized violence because they aren't exposed to those ideas um and we aren't doing our job in the sexual assault recovery field and the psychology field to really address those there's harm being caused and that hurts my heart yeah um and that's what keeps driving me to to you know do podcasts and do talks and lecture about this stuff because people are suffering in silence and real harm it's already hard enough for a woman to even step forward and disclose that she was raped to be able, to be able to say she had an orgasm during it uh to be able to say she now has rape fantasies that she did or didn't have before to be able to say it's you know it's changed me sexually in ways that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. you know be able to have open dialogue Around all of those things is not something that's afforded them, and so they end up seeking it
0: out in sometimes dangerous ways. Yeah. Um, and not to say that the BDSM
1: community as a you know as a whole is dangerous, but there are certainly, as you know, dangerous factions, and there right. are exploiters, and there are people willing to create more harm. Um, And so for people to wander in there without their eyes open and without that background, it just terrifies me. And I see what some of the women are doing out of their pain. Um, And I just want to bring more enlightenment and more knowledge to all of that.
0: Yeah. You mentioned before we had started recording that you have a, a book coming out soon, right?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's not my book, but I have a chapter in the book. I was approached um, about a year and a half, two years ago um, when the Me Too movement was jumping off. And I do a lot of talking about um, feminist movement and Me Too and it's a lot of the circles that I move in. Um, and it's, it's called Me Too. Uh, it's like Me Too uh, psychotherapists and sexual assault counselors talk about their experiences something like that um but it's a it's a book of stories written by therapists such as myself about their own personal journey and in that book i go into much more detail about my sexual abuse in my teen years and what happened um, and how it shaped me as a professional Um, and it's the first time that i've ever told that story and as I mentioned to you, you know, just before we started the interview, I was speaking at an International Women's Day event where I was asked to speak about the Me Too movement. And that was the first time I publicly disclosed my own Me Too moment that that had been my experience. Um and so I guess this is the first time I don't know if your show's national, but this might be the first national time.
0: Yeah, <laughs> international <laughs> even. We have a, a lot of listeners overseas. So well, there we go.
1: So I've gone global. This <laughs> With my history.
0: H- have you gotten a number of new patients as the result of that that talk that you did? Because I imagine if I was to explore therapy in response to these events, I would I would prefer somebody that acknowledged that they had experienced it themselves instead uh, of somebody that was kind of an outside looking in perspective.
1: I, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a hard question because it kind of goes to the, the heart of what psychotherapy is about which is the focus is meant to be on the client not on us and so i'm very mindful you know especially in my training of not bringing myself too much into the therapy except when it will help advance the work that the client's going through so if i thought that a personal disclosure would be helpful to my client to help them open up more then i have done that i've done that you know with clients over the course of my career um, so it's not that I don't talk about it with my clients, mm-hmm. but I'm very selective about when and where, because if they're coming in and they're ready to do the work, there's no need for me to do that.
0: Right.
1: right. And I want, I don't want my story to overwhelm theirs. I, I want it to be a, a, a a movement, a catalyst to help them.
0: Right. I guess I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm personalizing this opinion because, um, and I've talked about it on the show before, I'm, I'm in recovery from substance abuse addiction. And like mm-hmm. one of the main tenets of the program I'm in is, you know, sharing your story and that helping another person and it helping the other person because they're hearing the experience of somebody else who's gone through the same thing. And yeah. that that identification and that, you know, informed experience, that's the same as your experience. Is so yeah. powerful and so helpful in terms of like allowing somebody to feel comfortable opening up and really diving into these things that they've been so closed about, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it has to do with different philosophies in the, I'm very familiar with the A C A communities. Um, I'm uh, what, over 15 years clean from cocaine use. I had my own substance abuse issues. Um, you know, as I was dealing with my own sexual abuse and issues in my marriage and all of that. Um, But they're really very different philosophies in terms of, you know, how how we practice. Um, It's much more collegial and interactive in the A communities. Psychotherapy is meant to be, you know, give that person space and focus and is not meant to be a place where I'm personally sharing and accept and unless it enhances the work of that person.
0: Right. I so inter- I understand cool. that. Just to clarify, I, I did mean more in terms of like, you know, I know there are directories of of people available, like professionals in, in your field and mm-hmm. in, in the bio. I guess it's something more like if I was to be searching and I saw in somebody's bio right. that, you know, they're an admitted victim of assault or something like that, I would be like, oh, I would they automatically kind of rise to the top excuse me, the top yeah. of the list, but not necessarily that I would expect if I was to be in treatment with them that, you know, it's this give and take that, you know, it just more, I guess, a sense of comfort that the person that I'm sharing with the person that I'm, I'm working with and speaking to is just familiar oh. in a real, real, you know, raw right. way. I,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to see maybe after the book comes out, if my, uh, my client load, uh, Triples. I'll, I'll come back on the show and tell you about it.
0: Yes, please do. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, you know what I find though is talking openly about difficult experiences draws people in. Just yeah. doing talks that arousal is a thing that happens. Simply saying that I think has brought more people to me because I will invariably, after a conference or a lecture, uh, whether it's in person or email or a phone call, a week or two later. Uh, I have women who will approach me and say, hey, I saw your lecture and that was my experience. Can I talk to you about it?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I have those experiences a lot. And that's just talking openly about, hey, this is a thing that happens and it's okay to talk about. And more than anything, I think that's what psychotherapy is. It's saying these these are experiences we have as human beings and they're okay to talk about. Yeah. And, and here's a safe place for you to do that if you don't have one anywhere else.
0: Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I'm going to put your your bio and a link to um, your sexual assault awareness site. You've created a great resource, and you're a great person to talk about these things. So I just appreciate your time.
1: Thanks, the... Brian. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Great. Okay. I'll talk to you All later. Right. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. Okay, as promised in the episode notes for today's show, I will be linking to Andrew's website, Sexual Assault Awareness. It's a great resource if you are a victim of sexual assault or sexualized violence, or if you just want more information on this topic or to find a way to reach out to Andrew. Uh, They do offer virtual appointments. I will also be linking to the Center for Positive Sexuality. They are the group that hosted the conference at which I met Andrew. Uh, He also serves on their board. And they're another great resource for information, as well as links to um, licensed counselors and therapists and educators in the field of sexuality. So two great sources to check out. And just a reminder, uh, our web address has changed. Till the end of the month we are still available on Graphic Paint, but we have our own new website, sexcompod.com. If you have any questions about the show or you know questions about the website or graphic paint, etc., uh, feel free to reach out at sexcompod at gmail.com. And otherwise, I will talk to you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like more information about the show, visit us online at sexcompod.com. That's S-E-X-C-O-M-P-O-D.com. If you'd like to be a part of the show, please email me at sexcompod at gmail.com. I am always looking for new sex audio and people to interview. It could be you.